We are recording. I think I'm on. I got a loud enough voice not to be on. So I just want to make sure. Uh, as you can see, I am not Father Steve Kennedy unless he got short and stockier and got a haircut. <laughs> I am Father Charles. And uh, in the absence of Father Jose and in the presence of Deacon Diane and at the request of Father Steve Kennedy, I am your preacher and celebrant today. So I thank you for having me. It's nice to be back at St. David's. So if a lot of people were surprised to see me, I was surprised too. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, any time to be a servant of this house because this house was a servant to me and sent me out as a priest, I will do it. So let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you, God, that you are present here by your word and by your spirit. And so, Father, I pray that we will not only be hearers of the word, not only will we receive the word, but we will be doers of the word when we leave this place. And that by your spirit, we will walk out this word in the world. So, Father, we come. We come to hear, we come to listen, but most of all, we come to do that we may walk out your kingdom to those who need it the most. And we ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If we look at our text this morning, sometimes the lectionary readings are like puzzles that you got to put together to see what God is saying. Sometimes the lectionary readings are like, you remember those old school, if you stare at them, you can see the image, that if you look real carefully in your eyes, that it would pop out at you. Sometimes the lectionary readings are like that. But before I begin to preach, I've got a story for you, and it's for free. I'm not even charging for it today. Let me tell you why John Wesley got kicked out of America. Do y'all really want to know the truth? That was a great introduction to that song of all for a thousand tongues to sing. And, but we don't realize why good old Wesley was kicked out. John Wesley was serving in the colony of Georgia at the time. And he met this young lady who was, I believe, the daughter of kind of the consultant to the governor of Georgia. And they, were, they would go out walking and talking. And he fell in love with this girl until he realized that her daddy had promised her to someone else. So it is a Sunday morning service. They're doing communion. And she comes up to his line to receive communion, and he refuses to give it to her. I said, good Lord. I said, Lord, I've been mad at some folk in my life. There's some folks I wish bears would eat and lightning would strike. But as a priest, I've given communion to everybody. Well, daddy finds out about this, and daddy don't take too kindly, and so he has to run in the middle of the night and catch that ship where he met the Moravians. And that's how he got kicked out of America. And so John and Charles Wesley would do their mission work in England. And another man by the name of George Whitfield, a former uh, theater major who had a lot of theatrics in his sermon. For some reason, I like him. Um, <laughs> 
preached the gospel and, and was part of the Great Awakening. In fact, he preached, he was so loud in his preaching that Ben Franklin wanted to do um, kind of these experiments on how loud his voice would carry. That he gave, he gave a plea for an offering uh, for an orphanage in Georgia. And Ben Franklin, who was a deist, who really didn't believe, felt so convicted in his heart that he gave all the money in his pocket into the collection plate. I need him to go raise some money for me. But our, our texts today do fit together because what they are talking about is the kingdom of God. And then we've got to realize that throughout Scripture, the kingdom of God is a theme. In fact, if we would have read our psalm as we did in the first service, we talk about God coming in on the shout. We talk about God in the psalms riding upon the waters. We talk about God is sovereign over all. Because the kingdom of God is the realm of, is the reign of God and the realm of God expressed by the rule of God through the role of the people of God. This is the kingdom of God, and this is the kingdom of God that's announced from Genesis to Revelation. That God is sovereign over all. God is the king of all gods because every god has to bow at the feet of Yahweh. And then this, this theme of kingdom is always connected with water. And the reason is, is that water in Scripture not only symbolizes refreshing and renewal and redemption, it also represents judgment and chaos. That is why the Scriptures say that he rides upon the waters, meaning that he is sovereign over all. This is why Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and dark and in chaos, and the Spirit of God hovers over the waters, and by His Word He begins to create. God's greatest canvas of creation is chaos. That's good news for us. Go look in the mirror and look at your life. That's good news. That even through our own chaos, God can bring forth a new and fresh creation. We know that in, when we get to Genesis 6, God tells Noah to build an ark. And he floods the water in judgment. But Noah and his family are saved. And Peter picks up on this, talking about through the waters of baptism. As, as Noah was saved, so are we. That through these waters of baptism, we are brought into the kingdom and we are saved. They were called the ark, the early church fathers, the ark is the church. And the church is a sacrament of the kingdom. And then we get to the most famous story of all. Moses has gone down to the Red Sea. And now Pharaoh's army is behind them. And the children of Israel are complaining, which they do for 40 years. It begins here. God has already shown his sovereignty, his kinghood over Egypt, that God says, I am the sovereign over all nations. All those plagues that we look at 
was a was taken out each idol of Egypt because each idol of Egypt represented those plagues and God says I'm sovereign over you you're cast down you're cast down you're cast down and guess what Pharaoh you believe yourself as God but I got news for you I'm about to cast you down too God doesn't take likely to idols and so they have seen the hand of God work and now they've gone down to the Red Sea and then they begin to complain they want to go back to Egypt. Later on, they'll say, I want to go back to Egypt for leeks and onions. For spices, really? You forget that you're a slave, that you did hard labor, but all you want is some salt and pepper? Come on, people. But how many times when we have a crisis of faith and how many times when we're in a crisis, we go back to that which is familiar to us, but yet still may be hurtful to us. And so they get to the Red Sea and Moses is like, God, what do we do? Stretch out your rod. And Moses begins to lift his rod up and the Red Sea begins to part. And these, and these people begin to go on the dry land all night. The Bible says, that a wind comes in and parts the Red Sea, just like the breath of the Spirit parted the chaos and the God's people were delivered. And as soon as they were to the other side, the waves and everything come crashing in on Pharaoh and his army. But as one preacher said, he says, sometimes we feel like the Israelites who are delivered and sometimes we feel like Pharaoh's army crushed by the issues of life. Crushed by the circumstances of life. Crushed by the crisis of life. We feel overwhelmed. Which brings us to our epistle lesson today of Romans chapter 6. I love 6, 7, and 8 because it talks about what it means to live the baptized life. In the early church, and we still keep this to this day, it is the baptismal covenant. We say, do you renounce the devil and sin and death and all the destructive forces that take out human beings? And we say, yes, we do with God's help. The early church would go one step further. It's not just you're denouncing the devil and sin and destruction. Do you denounce your idols do you turn away from your idols and do you turn to Jesus? Because in those days, they would put Jesus along with their idols. Well, Jesus will help me out after death. But this idol over here gives me money and prosperity. So when I need money, I pray to this idol. But when I need some help, I pray to Jesus. Can I give you a clue about something? Nothing changes in 2,000 years, does it? Just because you don't have idols up in, on your mantle don't mean you don't have idols in your driveway. Or you don't have idols in your portfolio. Or you don't have idols at your job. See, idols are sneaky. And they show up when we least expect it. So Paul begins his text in Romans 6 and 1 says, Shall we sin? So that grace can abound. Why? Because earlier he said, because of all the sin, God gave us grace upon grace upon grace. 
And the Romans were smart. Hmm, I think we found a loophole here. So if I want more of God's grace, let me sin some more and some more and some more and I'll get some forgiveness and everything like that. So Paul says, shall we sin? That grace shall abound more? The old King James says, God forbid for that to happen. And then Paul begins to talk about baptism. He says, know you not that when you were baptized, that you were submerged into the very burial of Jesus. Why? Because when John the Baptist came a preaching the kingdom of God, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he invited everybody to come to the waters of the Jordan down by the riverside to be baptized. And so Jesus shows up one day while his cousin is preaching. And he says, I've come here to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, you've got this turned around. You need to baptize me. And he says, no, John, I need to be baptized by you to fulfill all that is right, to fulfill all that God has called both of us to do. And in those muddy, dirty waters of the Jordan, in fact, you probably got more dirtier as you went down than you ever did before you got into it. It's nasty. Nobody wanted to go there. They wanted to go to the springs of Syria or Palm Springs. Not the Jordan. Remember the man born with leprosy? And Elisha goes, you need to go down by the riverside of Jordan and, uh, get, and dip yourself and you'll be clean. He says, how can I be clean in dirty waters? But what I'm so glad that when Jesus dipped down into the waters of Jordan, he began to identify with everything that was dirty and muddy in humanity. He wasn't afraid to be touched as Hebrews would say, by our infirmities. And he began to take those things on. St. Cyril of Jerusalem would say it this way, that when Jesus went in to the Jordan of the river, he began to crush the head of the Leviathan. He began to crush the head of, of the serpent. He began to crush sin. He began to crush, and he'll fulfill that at the cross and his resurrection. Jesus identified with us in baptism so that we may identify with him. So Paul says, no, you not. That when you were baptized, that you were buried with Christ. And the word baptized is only used outside in the New Testament in certain parts of Greek literature. And it has nothing to do with ritual washing. It has everything to do with agriculture. And the person who's writing this in Greek culture is talking about making pickles. Because the word baptism means to submerge. And he talked about pickling. Taking a cucumber, putting it in a jar with some spices, and letting it ferment. So that the cucumber has to soak up everything that is around it. And yet, the cucumber is still the same but it's different. And what Paul says is, in the waters of baptism, we are pickled into the life of the triune God, that we are caught up in the life of the triune God, that we soak in the life of God. 
that though we are the same, we need to start living different. And so a lot of times we don't get pickled enough. And we wonder, why am I going through all this? God goes, I got to pickle you some more. You ain't living this out yet. Got to pickle you some more. Or as St. Teresa of Avila says, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. And so we're buried with him. And then Paul would say that in Christ we are united with his death. A better translation in the Greek is we are planted with his death. We are grafted in to his death. That we may be raised up in newness of life. That that one day at the last day will be resurrected from the dead. But Paul always in his epistles talks about the last day invading today. He says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live your resurrection life now. The Spirit is the down payment of that life. So you need to to mortify those things that are in you so that you can live the life. And so Paul says, we are raised to newness of life. There's some people as we all joke around, because see, I come from an old Pentecostal background, if you cannot tell. <laughs> and, we, and we still submerge, you know. And there's a certain people I say, I'm going to hold you down until you see Jesus. <laughs> Do you see the light? All right, we can pop you back up. In the early church, they would submerge you three times for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, you may ask, then why do we in our church sprinkle or pour? I have an answer. It's a very practical answer, actually. In the early church, you had this document called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And they would say, when you baptize, it was like the earliest church manual we have. When you baptize, find living water, like a river or, or a waterfall. If you can't find that, Get a little bit of, get an oasis and pour. And if you can't pour, sprinkle. Because see, for the early church, it wasn't the amount of water that was on you. It was if you would live out your baptismal covenant in the world. And we argue if we should sprinkle or dip or plunge. And yet we don't talk about being a disciple and living out that life now. Baby, the church is Dairy Queen. We sprinkle, dip, and plunge. (laughs) And just like Dairy Queen is for all ages. So here Paul is saying that you have died to sin and you've been raised to newness of life. That you don't have to sin and that grace that God gives you is an empowering grace to live the life of the kingdom. But our text stops at 11. And we really need to go to 12. Because in 11, it says that we are risen with Christ. That our lives are hidden in Christ with God. Paul will say this in variations in Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians. That we are in Christ. And not under the law. Under the law, we work for a position. 
In Christ, we work from a position. The thing about it is we still got to work. There's a difference, though. When you work from a position, it's in a position of empowerment. When you work for a position, you're scrounging day by day. And so God is calling us, you work from a position empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out the kingdom of God in this world. But in verse 12, Paul knows what he has to pull here. Because he's like, look, Paul, we're we glad this is our position, but your position isn't always your possession. You can be in a position, but not possess the fullness of it. And the day-to-day life of the sanctification of the Spirit is how we possess it. Paul says, therefore, let no more sin have reign in your mortal bodies, your minds, your souls, your whole beings. Put it to death. Because what you offer up to sin, you become a slave. See, you could be declared free, but it doesn't mean you always live free. You can have a declaration of independence, but it takes a while to live out that independence day by day. And so Paul says at the cross, we are forgiven. At the cross, we are set free. In Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we are sons and daughters. We're no longer under the law, but you've got to start living what you proclaim. Start living out that life of the triune God in the world. So he says you've got to put to death. That's why in Philippians 2, when it talks about he who was in the form of God, Jesus, thought that this position was something to exploit, but made himself a no reputation, taking on what? A form of a slave. Paul is playing on two themes in that text. He is playing on being a servant, the servant of Isaiah and the suffering servant. But he's also saying something about humanity. That in the garden when we fail, we stop being fully human and we became slaves. Because to be fully human is to glorify God, as St. Irenaeus says. And to have dominion and to have freedom. But we became slaves of death. We became slaves of the devil, and we became slaves of the destructive forces like those chaotic waters who pull us to and fro. So Jesus takes on the form. The son takes on the form of a slave slave to give slaves sonship. So that at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord of all. And if we've been baptized into Christ, we have his name. So our position is with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. But most of the time, we live under that position and we go back to being slaves. And we've all done it. We know our baptismal covenant. We're supposed to turn from sin and turn to Jesus. And yet, how many times... When the devil comes back with the chains. Sometimes we resist. And he has to wrap them around him. Sometimes we just offer ourselves up like this. Just take me now. I'll go. And then Jesus over and over. Comes. With his blood. And sets us free. That's the good news of the gospel. 
That's the good news. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. And that's what Paul will go in in 7 and 8 to talk about. You know, I love Romans 7. I think it's a description of our, our lives. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't do, I do. And I try not to do it, but I do it anyway. Who will deliver me from this? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that we have been delivered through Jesus the Messiah. And now, therefore, there is now no condemnation. It's just not grace for forgiveness. It is God's grace for empowerment to live out the kingdom of God. And now we get to Jesus and Matthew chapter 10. If you read the chapter, it begins with Jesus calling the 12 disciples and making them apostles to send them out. And he gives them some instructions, you know. Don't take too much with you. Depend upon the hospitality of the house. Find a servant of peace, a son of peace. And if you go into that house and you have peace, give them the peace of the kingdom. If not, go out and shake the dust off your feet. You are like sheep among wolves, but it's okay. God knows the hairs of your head. You're going to be all right. God's going to provide for you. God is with you. And then we get to our text. I have not come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. Now the boys are really confused after this one. Look, didn't he tell us to bring peace? And isn't he the prince of peace? And aren't we supposed to be peacemakers? I think he said that, you know, not the cheesemakers, the peacemakers. Get it right. Aren't we supposed to be peacemakers? But now he's talking about the sword and the boys get excited. You know why? Because this is the Messiah they want to see. Oh, Lord, he's going to take the sword and we're going to take back Jerusalem and we're going to take back Israel. We're going to make our country great again. We're taking about the temple. Let's go. Let's go now. Go, go, go. We're going to do it. And Jesus smiles. Real big. And says, that's not what I'm talking about, boys. I love how Jesus will take what their expectations and never fulfill them. Sometimes Jesus don't fulfill your expectations either. He says, no. Because it's a dividing sword. Mother against father, father against son. Son against brother or sister, vice versa. Why? Because Jesus knew that the kingdom of God is like water. It's like a wave. If you align yourself with wave, you can ride the wave of the kingdom. If you, if, you, if you don't and try to fight against the kingdom, it's a tidal wave and it's going to overdo you. Let me tell you something. The kingdom of God is coming if you like it or not. He says you have a choice. And when you come and give a word in the house, they have a choice to listen or not. And it's going to be in your own household. You see this all the time in the book of Acts. 
Houses are divided. Houses of synagogues of worship are divided. Do we go with this kingdom embodied in Jesus? Or do we still keep doing our own thing? But there's always a moment of decision. In fact, every moment of decision is a moment of decision for the kingdom. It's living the life of the repentance. We're going to be divided. And you've got to realize family was everything. They had genealogies. They didn't need Ancestry.com. You didn't have to spit in anything and find out your heritage. You didn't need DNA testing. They knew they kept good records and they'd fight over them. What? You're going to divide us from our family? And Jesus is like, don't you read the prophets? When they came with their message of the kingdom of God trumps every other kingdom, did you not hear their message? And families were divided against families? Oh. Yeah, Jesus, I'm not sure if I like this message. And then Jesus goes a step further. You can't love your mama, your daddy, your kids, your anything more than me. Oh, Jesus. You mean I got to love you more than mama? Hey, let me tell you something. This is good news for some of us who came from toxic families. We're with you, Jesus. We'll love you more than anybody. Yeah, Jesus. Luke's a little bit harsher. He actually probably preserves the idiom a little bit more. He says, unless you hate, your, your love for, your, for everybody else has to be compared to hate. Why is Jesus talking about this? He's talking about the idolatry of relationships. And a lot of times we think people around us complete us. You know, remember the old movie, Jerry Maguire? You complete me. That's a lie from the pits of hell. Because let me tell you something, as Henry Nowen brings up, if that person, no matter if it's a friendship or a family or a significant other, no matter if they, can, if they can complete you, then they have become your what? God. And when they don't, what do we do with our idols? We try to manipulate them. What do we do with people who don't fulfill our expectations? We manipulate them. Instead of honoring them as gifts of God in Jesus, knowing that they are gifts to us and holding lightly to them and honoring them as gifts, but they may have to go. We may have to let go. See, sometimes love means holding on and sometimes love means letting go. And we need this, the Spirit of God to give us discernment of which one to do. Because a lot of times we think holding on to love is empowering and what we're doing is enabling. Sometimes the kingdom of God will tell you, you need to cut ties with some folk. Because you can't take everybody with you. It's not that you don't love them. But sometimes it means just letting go. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, you cutting now. He said, I told you it was going to be a sword. Oh, you cutting at me, Jesus. You know. You're dividing houses. And now you're dividing loyalties. 
You mean my identity has to be in you, Jesus, and not where I come from? So, so you, are you telling me that my identity in you is more than my ethnicity, more than my country, more than this, more than that? Yeah. Welcome to the kingdom. Oh, because I'm just not Lord of Israel. I'm Lord of the nations. And sometimes we can become so myopic in our vision on who Jesus is Lord over that we forget he's Lord of all. He's Lord of all. It is this God who says, Israel, yeah, I've chosen you to be a blessing to the world, but there'll come a day when priests will come out of Assyria and Egypt and Ethiopia and they will come and they will worship me. It's bigger than you. And we got to realize that the kingdom of God is bigger than our personal piety. Sometimes we will read Paul and get caught up in our personal piety. Like it's about self-improvement. I tell my recovering addicts this down on Skid Row. I said, sometimes you're going to live right and it's not going to be for God. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And I tell them, yes, I know I'm crazy. Okay? But, but, I said, because you'll rationalize your own mind, God will forgive me. Don't we all do that? I'm going to do it this once and God will forgive me. Every other addict says that too. And you're not going to do it for yourself. Why? Because you want to do what you want to do anyway. And guess what? God will forgive you. You don't think through the consequences of that. But I said there are other people who you want to reconcile with. Some of you got babies that you've never seen because of your addiction. Some of you have broken ties with your family because of your addiction. And you want to reconcile with them. And you'll live right for those. You'll live right for them. You'll lay down your life for them. And I said, bingo, God's got you. Because when you do it for them, you do it for him and you do it for yourself. That's why we get to the next part of this text. Oh, by the way, not only am I going to talk about your relationships, if you don't take up your cross and follow me and deny yourself, you ain't worthy of me. Take up what? Jesus, let's go back to the sword where we're coming and conquering. You mean the symbol of this movement is not the sword, but really the, the cross? You mean the most excruciating capital punishment there is? And you're making that a symbol for what we should do? What kind of Messiah are you? As one of the old French saints said it this way, a good God gives his good friends a cross. Everybody wants to be a friend of God. Nobody wants the responsibilities of that. And he goes, no, 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 no. You've got to take up your cross and follow me. You've got to deny yourself and follow me. Oh, Jesus. That's the hard part of discipleship. We've got to lay, our, lay down our agendas and follow him. We've got to lay down our preconceived notions and follow him. We've got to lay down our idols and follow him. We've got to say no to some things and follow him. We've got to follow him to the cross. 
Because this is where we're going back to Paul, where it says we are crucified with Christ. We're crucified in him. We're crucified in him. And so that means we got to lay down our agendas. And that's the hard part. And that's what he's getting them. He's getting them to change their perception. You had a perception of a conquering Messiah that's going to liberate your land and give you your temple back and bring back the glory days. And I'm trying to get you to think that it's bigger than your land, your country, or anything else. I want to give you the world. I want you to proclaim this gospel to the world. But in there, there is suffering at times. In there, there is persecution at times. In there, there is tears and separation at times. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 3, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And we'll stop right there. Because that's the good news right there. And power of resurrection, yeah! Read the rest of the verse, baby. That I may have communion with his suffering that in order that I may be conformed fully to his life, his death, and his resurrection. God is calling us to be on mission in the world with him. God is calling to lay down our life for him. God is calling us as the people of God, as the body of Christ, as the church who is the sacrament of the kingdom, to embody the kingdom to a world that's looking for other kingdoms and other places for meaning and significance and salvation. And they're coming up empty. God is calling us, calling us to proclaim the good news that the image and likeness of God has been restored in Jesus. If you want a definition of sin, sin is the broken image and likeness of God in us and in others. And sins is when we take that broken image and start cutting everybody else and cutting ourselves. And in Christ, we are restored to our true humanity. We are restored back to what God has called us to be. We sit in heavenly places with Jesus, where everything's aligned with the kingdom, where we have true peace, not the absence of conflict, but shalom, nothing lacking, fully integrated. Everything's aligned. Everything's aligned in our lives. And if the devil knows if he can get us out of alignment, he's got us. If he can get us to forget who we are and whose we are, he's got us. And so he overwhelms us with the crisis of this world. But Jesus says, don't worry. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Don't worry. My father knows the hairs of your head. I wonder how many hairs I have. He says, don't worry. The Spirit will give you the words to say. You're going to be all right. It doesn't matter if the world sees you as powerless because when you are powerless or weak, that's when I'm made strong in you and through you. And if we want to be a powerful church, we need to start being a powerless church. And that's why he goes at the end. When you receive a prophet, you get a prophet's reward. When you send out a prophet, you get a prophet's reward. When you receive a righteous man, you get a righteous man's reward. But then he says, when you get a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, these disciples. See, it's just not the ones with the titles. We love serving ones with titles, especially in the church. Go to clergy meetings. You see it all the time. 
Everybody want to hobnob with everybody. Go to a provisional assembly and it's even worse. But Jesus says, it's good. It's fine. But don't forget the least of these. Don't forget the least of these. And St. John Chrysostom writes this whole thing on his uh, lectures to Matthew. Here you are. You see somebody who needs water. Here you are seeing somebody who needs fed. And you look at them as a sconce because you said it's their fault why they're in that. And why should I give them any food? Why should I give them any drink or shelter? They don't deserve it. They got themselves in this, in this place to begin with. But I'm just talking about St. John Chrysostom, who's about 300 AD. I'm not talking about today, so don't get it twisted. We're just talking about back then. And he says, why? And you tell yourself, they did, it's their fault. Get up by the bootstraps and help yourself. And Chrysostom says, look at you. God had mercy on you. Because of your sinfulness, God didn't stop the rain, did he? God didn't stop the universe. When you deserve judgment, how can you pass judgment on your brother and sister? And he goes, I don't care if they got themselves in that place. I don't care if they continue in that place. In that present moment, God is calling you to give a cup of cold water to the least of thee. He's one of my favorite saints, by the way. He says, I've called you to be on mission in this world. I've called you to live your baptized life, to live the life and the vows that you took at baptism and that you owned at your confirmation. I've empowered you with my spirit to carry out the kingdom to a lost and dying world that is searching for an experience with God. And if we don't give them an experience with God, they'll get an experience with all kind of other things who claim to be God. But if we don't lay down our idols, we do it too. That's why I tell everybody, I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where I found bread. We're beggars. And when we become, who was it? Oh, yes, one of the popes said the St. Francis of Assisi. Francis, the church can no longer say silver and gold, have we not? And Francis replies, your holiness, the church can't say rise up and walk either anymore. I'd rather say to people, rise up and walk than have all the money in the world. Because in him, we are made strong. In him, we are made rich. In him, we have the best kingdom there is. And the reason I stay Christian is because that peasant Jew will not leave me alone. That carpenter will not leave me alone. He looks and he stares at me in the faces of others and he won't leave me alone. I see him in the face of the beggar. I see him in the face of the addicted. I see him in the face of the least of these. And I said, if the kingdom of God is not true, we have no hope. But if it is true, then we have the hope of the world. And we're called to proclaim that good news. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are your sons and daughters, not by merit but because we are clothed with your son through the waters of baptism. And we come to you as sons and daughters who stumble. Sons and daughters who still get mixed up in slavery. Sons and daughters who still get mixed up in sin. And we come asking for your forgiveness, your liberating power, 
when we have gone astray back to our idols and we have bowed to lesser things than bowing our knee and worshiping you. We're sorry. And we pray, God, that you empower us by your Holy Spirit to live our baptismal covenant, to turn away from these things and to turn to you and be on mission with you in the world. To go out and do those things you have called us to do, as the liturgy says, with gladness and singleness of heart because we are mystical members of the body of your Son. Let us be a sacrament of the kingdom. Let us be a colony of the kingdom. And let us reach our communities and those spheres of influences around us. Knowing that we might be rejected, but knowing there are people who have been desperate to hear the word and we have been disobedient in speaking it. Forgive us of our laxity and indifference. And let us preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. And we ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.